John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 143.LK2104, certificate number 28114. The Boots Theory. When was the last time... I, I'm, now, I'm not going to make you a scapegoat here, but uh, but I am going to ask you some questions. I'm going to interrogate you, oh, your spending, your no, and Mindy's spending, I'm no, afraid. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, if you don't ask for receipts, I will give a very relatable account of middle-class American life. Okay, good. Good. That's all I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, you guys came from the streets, I know, and you know, you've made good, but but you still have that uh, that streets attitude. The funny thing is like we did kind of feel like we were poor when you were we were young. And I remember my parents saying the same thing like when when dad was in law school, we had $10 a week for groceries. Yeah, when dad was in law school, know, on I, your path to middle-class American affluence. I know so many people like that who who are just like searching their past for that time when like they, oh, we were so poor. Because the Romneys did it. Remember during the campaign, yeah. Mitt Romney would be like, Ann and I lived in a basement apartment. Yeah. Well, well, mom, you, I'm sorry. You hadn't inherited $100 million yet? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> when mom was getting her PhD in Latin, <laughs> you know, we just, we lived on top ramen. I know, I know. And I know. in my family mythologizing, it always was very much a rags to riches thing. And I didn't interrogate it until later where I was like, oh, that's a very temporary kind of poverty that's very different from the actual kind of poverty that like we need to discuss. Yeah, and it's funny because you know, of course I have the same story, right? My my mom divorced my dad in the early 70s when uh, a, a woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband co-signing on right. it and she had worked, you know, she'd worked some deal before uh, before they got divorced where you know, she actually knew her banker uh, and was able to get her own checking account or whatever. But, you know, she worked uh, 80 hours a week, and it, we were poor. But we were poor in that way you're describing, right, where she worked in computers, and yeah. we were going to be okay We're poor, eventually. and things are going to be fine. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people are dealing with, we're poor, and if any one of uh, 10 things happens this year, we're destroyed. it's disaster. Yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you had something repaired? Ooh, it's so hard to get things repaired now because uh, the ethos is, well, you should just, it would be cheaper to buy a new one probably. Right. I mean, this is your full on, uh, 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 there's a different kind of poverty story. Our robot vacuum is broken. 
Do you know how hard it is, John? In America, in America today, I couldn't have written this better. When your robot vacuum is doing a job, what do you do? Uh, well, we actually we don't know. We're like, how do we find? Some- okay, here's a, here's a, another one. We have- there's no customer service number either. It's just like tweet at us, right? Actually, we have a couple things now. We have a uh, we have a recliner chair that used to have a button that would make it recline, and now it'll recline, but it won't unrecline what's oh, the I word th- i thought you were going to say that it just reclined and and flipped forward like randomly <laughs> it's, like, it crushes glitch, you glitch, it glitch. leans forward until you die like a like a james bond supporting character yeah that seems sucky so wait a minute it goes back but it won't go it forward. won't go up so you kind of have to like you kind of like lower yourself into the chair very carefully because now it's not a rec- now it's a recliner all the time it's a hammock basically yeah and it's not clear who who would you call i can't I can't put my recliner on the top of my car like Mr. Bean and take it to a repair shop. But also, who comes to your house to rewire your recliner? So let me tell you this, and uh, and this shouldn't shouldn't be a secret, but everywhere, every town, there are tinkerers yes. and fixer guys and gals, and there are fixers who actually will come to your home and repair an appliance mm. and they, and no appliance is too big or too small. And they have, I mean, I've done this for a dishwasher and a, right? maybe a fridge compressor. I've never done it for furniture, but they will come and just take a shot at it. And something like furniture, you know, they, they, they have, they're on a first name basis with the people at the electrical supply shop and the whatnot. And so they, you know, they figure out the part and then they figure out if you can get it. And do you the, have such a guy or gal in the greater I Seattle area? I do, and he actually lives up by you, and he's exactly what you would expect. Like he's very crusty, and he, you know, he will not admit defeat. And so, if you say like my robot vacuum, he'll be like, "Well, I'll take a look at it." And then once he's got it open, like he won't. He'll. It's never say die until he gets it to work again. And a couple of times he's worked on things for me where he had to really understand. He had to, first of all, he had to learn what it was. And then right. he was like, okay, well. Let's so it's see. like a it's, robot and a vacuum. It's just this over here and that. You know, but the thing is, when he looks at a, at something. Yeah. He's he, like, oh, this is the part like in a regular exactly. vacuum, but this is the part like in a. And there are things he can't, you know, obviously, like he can't like affect it if. Because so so much of the time, planned obsolescence is built into the software, yeah. or built into the you know to the app. The wheels still have twenty more years in them, but yeah. I, and this is the thing that bothers me. Like as a product of the twentieth century, is no, you shouldn't buy a new thing when an old one breaks. Then the the dumps are just full of perfectly fine recliners with one little problem. Right. It seems ecologically irresponsible. It also seems just am- immoral for some reason. Like. You know, God has given me this amazing gift, a recliner, and what, I got eight years out of it? What's wrong with me? Well, I mean, I'm sure as you drive around town, every once in a while you pass by a vacant lot where somebody's sitting in a lawn chair and he has nine lawnmowers there, (laughs) and the lawnmowers are all, you know, very reasonably priced, $50, and what, where those lawnmowers come from is that particular guy goes and finds all the free lawnmowers that are on Craigslist that stopped running. Uh, changes the spark plug in them, or you know, opens them up and just. If he gets twenty of them, he has enough parts for seventeen working lawnmowers. Well, that are just like, well, the jet was clogged, yeah. and he just knows how a carburetor works. And meanwhile, the person that bought that lawnmower for two hundred and fifty dollars or three hundred dollars three years ago went and bought another one. Yep. And then, but the only the only challenge is when you drive past 
that guy and you need a lawnmower, go buy one from him instead of buying. It's probably a better lawnmower, actually. Well, I mean, one of the many, I mean, this is not the most important, but one of the many dire consequences of real estate doing what it did in Seattle and many other American cities is all the little repair shops got priced out. Yeah. You know, I, I've noticed driving around LA, many neighborhoods still have a lot, lots of weird little niche businesses. And I just realized, you know what? Like 10 years ago, Seattle had those too. Yeah. And then rent doubled. Up on Capitol Hill, there used to be a typewriter repair shop and it was there until, and I have to say until 2000. And it seriously was just a shop and it was right there on Olive Way. Just a little. What are you going to do when your typewriter just breaks? Just take a typewriter there and they'll, and they'll fix it. All gone. And, you know, now I guess you just give your typewriter to Amanda Palmer and she turns it into jewelry. <laughs> but uh, but those of us that have... If it's good, Tom Hanks will come to your house for it. Yeah. If it's not good, he'll send somebody. Those of, us, those of us that have between three and seven manual typewriters, like it's not it's not nothing. I have one, one decorative typewriter and that's... that's I'm, I'm good. Is it an Underwood, like a, a true manual or is it an electric typewriter? It is a true manual, but it's it's not like a nice or collectible one. I don't think they're actually collect. They're like, are there too many for any of them to be yeah, nice? Yeah, they're like accordions. They Aren't some of them pretty? Where they're like Bauhaus design or something? They're beautiful, but you have to have enough space to have a completely non-functional thing that's the size of a giant typewriter. Luckily, you Luckily, do. We both do. Um, when was the last time slash if ever you? That's not the way you use a slash, but let's just keep rolling. Um. Uh, that you had a pair of shoes resold. Yeah. No. Uh, Never did. Have you I ever- feel like I feel like I have personally, so you know the thing where the rubber heel comes loose and flaps. Uh-huh. I have personally epoxied that. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Uh, including at a time in my life when I had like a seven-figure game show check. Bravo. I was like... I was like, I am not like getting rid of these shoes. Everything's fine except for the heel. Yeah, it would be an insult to God. Yeah, like God would probably smite me in some way. Do you feel like you have had? But I don't even know where a cobbler. Where would you go for a cobbler? I'm sure they exist. Cobblers, actually, surprisingly, all around. Um, Are there any in this? Are you seeing cobblers in this room, John? (laughs) The cobblers (laughs) were here all along. Uh, I mean, there's a cobbler on the street in West Seattle. There's a cobbler in Burien. You don't see them because like a lot of things in modern life, including homeless people, your eyes train themselves to glance over them and not... Not uh, Not for the same reason. Not for the same reason. With homeless people, it's guilt. I don't feel guilt when I see a cobbler. I just... It has little utility to me. But funny, you know, cobblers tend to be... uh, Tend to be eclectic people. And their shops are often uh, a mad jumble. But that's what I like. Well, and it's wonderful. Uh, they're a mad jumble, and the and often the people who choose that profession are themselves a mad <laughs> jumble. jumble. Uh, Luckily, elves come every night and help them fix the shoes. Oh, we are not we're not gnomes. Uh, but you can find lots of those little repair people, and often what it is is they're just grandfathered into some lease or. Yeah, their dad actually bought the, the storefront, yeah. and so they're just there, you know, amazingly still repairing people's shoes. It's true that a lot of these businesses Seattle's losing now are cases where it's like, yeah, well, we've just run it for 65 years, and now we're old, and the kids don't want to, you know? That's what, that's what it is. So a lot of, I mean, even if the economy might support a cobbler, you know, you need to have a cobbler agree to be a cobbler. I knew a haberdasher here who was this... You know, this old black guy from the South who had found at some point in his life all the hat making equipment 
of his forefathers, right? Huh. Like the hat making equipment of the 1930s. And he had accumulated it unto himself so that he had all these lasts and all this stuff that you couldn't re- really properly haberdash without. And he had this business. It was up on, uh, up in Magnolia mm-hmm. making hats. And I found him at one point cause I had a bunch of hats and I took all these old Stetsons in and had him, you know, kind of reblock them, re-block, patch them back together. And then about five years later he died and I, I would go in and talk to him all the time. And he was like, yeah, nobody want my kids don't want to do this. Nobody does. And there are these guys down in LA who are young and cool and have long hair and got into hat making because Johnny Depp will buy five hats from them. <laughs> but up here in Seattle, like nobody wants a, an open road. Like I, I'm just doing hat work for old guys and, and every once in a while, some like alt country indie rocker, but, and then he died and I, I actually asked him, where do you think all this equipment is going to go? And he said, I'll be, it'll be a tragedy to have it all broken up, but that's what'll happen. There'll be some estate sale and people will buy this, you know, buy a thing to put on their shelf. And, uh, I didn't, it'll never get used. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't, when he died, I just sort of like poured one out for him, but I didn't, um, I, I didn't have the wherewithal to go buy his entire hat shop and then begin a new life. Like any good capitalist, I am driven crazy by the idea of any efficiency at all in our economy. Yeah. And it does seem like this is a case where there are people out there who would be very happy making a good living in one of these niche artisanal or repair professions. And in fact, there would be demand for it, but how do you the, put, put the, the one with yeah, the, the other. messaging of our society has not conveyed to this person. You just need to get really into, um, into, uh, armchair repair, you know, now, uh, you know, and the world will be the path to your door. What's interesting is that trends do cycle back. You know, there's, there's an ongoing trend of, of people wearing hats. Now hats have, have been in vogue for 10 or 15 years, you know, particularly like a certain kind of guy with a handlebar mustache, but also, you know, all kinds of people wearing, no, I'm not talking about baseball hats, but like uh, classic hats, traditional hats. Some kind of hat that conveys style. It's a little bit of a stylish hat, uh, except a real hat, by which I mean one that's, you know, that's actually- For grownups. For grownups. You wear baseball caps. I mean, I wear what I wear. I, I, I wear hats. Yeah, sure. I wear a, a baseball hat to a baseball game. I wear a hat that says- Hang loose Hawaii if I'm going to Hawaii, but uh, but those hats are expensive. You know they're they're a couple to a few hundred dollars and up from there. But you can go to Target and buy a facsimile of that hat, and if you don't care or don't know, you can spend twenty dollars and have a hat that gets how how close sixty percent of the way. I mean it has. The elements it has a it has a brim and a and a hat band and you know it it goes close enough without going over and you live a life of abundance such that this will not be your daily hat for twenty years. Right. This is an occasional thing where you think, well, maybe this will wear out, and I'm fine with it. What's interesting is that there are people that have chosen to wear that hat every day. It's their look, but they bought a twenty five dollar one, and it's not going to hold up. 
It's not going to hold up. And it also never really does. It doesn't actually accomplish the look, right? It's, it becomes, I mean, some people look, it would. But I feel like I'm the person that might fall for it and not be able to tell at a glance if that's a cheaper and expensive hat. Whereas somebody like you, who's looked at the inventory can see immediately that they bought the cheap one. Well, it's funny because I, uh, I naturally inc- was inclined to buy old things from a young age. And I think it, it goes back to when we were poor and my mom would shop at Goodwill and we, and she loved Goodwill. And back in the seventies, you know, we would go to Goodwill and she would give me $5. You could get more stuff oh, you, than at the mall. You load it up. And so I got accustomed to wearing old clothes and then so developed a, an ability to kind of, first of all, tell old clothes from new. And then as clothing manufacturing got outsourced and got turned into real production line stuff. And then overseas kind of the stitches changed, things were glued together, fabrics got cheaper. I, I was, I was just invested in, I'd, I'd worn the other stuff and you could feel the difference. I could really feel it. And I really tell the difference. And so got into the, that subculture of people that would stand around and talk about it, right? So I would go into these old stores and and listen in on conversations between the guy behind the counter and the guy that had found a bunch of stuff to sell to him. So talking about the era of what it is. Yeah, and, and look at these stitches and look at the look, look at, at the how lining. the the fabric, the the warp and the weave. And so, you know, it became a kind of education that I had. So I started to take my shoes to cobblers because I because they were resolable, they were old, and they were, um, they were made a certain way. So, and I did wear them. So they, and they were also, and I got them used. So they were already pretty worn. <laughs> um, but I would take, and I, and I got to know a cobbler up on Capitol Hill on Fifteenth Avenue, who was kind of a legendary kook. I would take my shoes there, and getting them resold was expensive. It was a lot more expensive. Then you could have bought probably a pair of the knockoff of that item for less than the repair easily. Although there was at the time, no knockoff of it. You know, if you wanted to wear that kind of shoe there, you had two options. Go to a, go to thrift stores all month until you hopefully found one that fit, which it was hard, harder than just go, go for a month or, invest the money at a time when I didn't have any money. But if you're less style conscious, if you're like me and what you're thinking is I need a pair of loafers right? and you're not thinking of a particular era or style or quality. Let me paint you a picture of the opposite childhood. Try growing up in South Korea in the early to mid eighties where you already have maybe five to 10 years before America does complete access to all kinds of knockoff, secondhand counterfeit, uh, cheaply made, all the polo, Clothes the of all Ralph kind, Lauren yeah. clothes, it, except it's just slightly We wrong. wore those Ralph Lauren shirts where the horse had the wrong number of legs right. or whatever. That was like me and my siblings for our whole childhood. So my mom would, you know, my mom had depression era parents and boy, did she love a bargain in the clothing stalls of, of Dongdae Moon or Itaewon or something. And she would be like, all right, here's eight polo shirts in every color. Here's your new knockoff Adidas. Here's your, you know, here's your jeans. They say whatever, but they're not. They say Levi's, but they're not. Well, and there was, and a- and as a result, I think I kind of think of clothes as just, uh, even though I'm, you know, a, a little, too, maybe a little too old for this point of view. I think of clothes as just 
cheap disposable renewables. And I, th- I think that is a way of seeing the world, right? I think that, that, um, the disposable economy works for people. I'm going to get sick of this anyway, and then yeah. I'll get a different color. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's new, so I don't have to, you know, it's not gross, right? I like it new and clean. I don't have to think about what I do when the seam gives. And two weeks from now, you know, who cares about it? If you think about the way that fashion used to turn, um, that every spring, summer, and fall, fashion changed, but people were spending... um spending real money on things and then it just sat in your closet cuz you couldn't wear it anymore cuz the hem was uh, was 2 too inches long or too, too long um it, it it kind of you know it it equits with some of that mentality right uh, men's lapels would go up and down you know would shrink or or whatnot but you could still wear your suits for many years um, and shoes probably for even longer. I'm wearing a pair of shorts from Bangladesh. I just happened to see the tag today when I put it on, and I thought, well, this is the ultimate outsourced cheap fast fashion thing, like Bangladesh. Yeah, well, it's not, not even not in, even Vietnam, which is a step below China, which was you know right a step below, a step below Japan or yeah. Korea, which was a step below. And Bangladesh. And I'm I'm pretty happy with my Bangladeshi shorts. Campuchia. No, no idea how long they're going to hold up. Well, there's been a lot of talk recently as China now is in broiled in this global con- global conflict with uh, you know caught between Nancy Pelosi and Ukraine, uh, which is where you never want to be. <laughs> you never want to be the the meat in that sandwich. But a lot of talk about India filling the gap uh, if China becomes a pariah state, and you know how are we going to how are we going to manage this this wonderful uh, global economy that bill clinton envisioned uh Which, if you know if our main manufacturer uh suddenly is on the no fly list i have this vague sense that there's a, a terrible apocalyptic inefficiency going on and i think it's true where all these clothes get worn for a few months and then where do they go you know they all nobody wants them in the developing world nobody wants them in thrift stores here they, a lot of them wind up shredded into insulation or something just because we are making bad, quick fashion faster than we can keep it. Yeah, it's true. Although you wonder whether recycling them into insulation or into the the tarmac under bike trails is maybe better than the asbestos and, and, you know, tar we used to use. But you're absolutely right, right? It's a a constant churn. Yeah, you could get by with a tenth of stuff because they would sit in your closet for 20 years. Yeah. And you'd happily wear them. Now, it seems like these ideas are very contemporary, right? Because the, the, um, this mass consumerism, this over, uh, outsourced gar- garbage uh, stuff feels very much like the global uh, 90s and 2000s kind of extension of, you know, let, we're not going to make anything in the United States anymore. Post-NAFTA globalism. Everything is going to be sold at Old Navy for as cheaply as it can possibly be sold. Even your phone is going to die in two years and you won't care because there will be a new one. Do you, re- do you remember when all of a sudden you could buy a polo shirt for $8? I mean, there, was, there really was a moment in the 1990s when what had formerly been the cheap store, like The Gap, became... 
a mid-level store? Like the Gap all of a sudden was something like, well, this actually is a Gap shirt because there was a new kind of store a which was tier. even cheaper, a lower tier. Ross and Marshalls and... Where where the things, or Old Navy, where the thing was under $10 and it felt like, how could it be? Like, how cheaply could this possibly have been made that it could be shipped here on a container and still be under $10. I remember having this kind of, well, I don't know what you call this kind of reverse sticker shock, but I remember having it with electronics. Like, And to this day, I'll be like, how can that TV be 100 bucks? This is three times the size of my parents' TV as a kid. And how can this, what, this DVD player or whatever is is $25? And it's a good brand? It's a Philips? What? How are they selling me a Blu-ray player for $25? Uh, it just it just seemed like the numbers didn't work. How could they literally make it and get it to me for that? Something is wrong here, and if it has slaves in it, I'm going to feel bad. That's you know that's the problem. Yeah. I didn't, and there was and that era coincided with when we started shipping raw lumber rather than milling lumber here. Started shipping raw uh, iron to be turned into steel, and then shipping it back, Bring it back, and consuming it where it can't possibly pencil out. How? How? And it's really a moment of, well, we deserve whatever the resulting temperature change is. We brought this on ourselves. My cheap TV, it was not cheap. It was very expensive. Yeah, and what we did was we we lost the possibility of a middle class life for our entire like lower middle class. On right? the plus side, 28 people did do very well. <laughs> yeah, and God bless them. And, <laughs> and that is 100% not compatible with Marxism, but compatible with Omnibus's celebration of capitalism. Do we have the sign? Well, oh, yeah. I'm Where is hold- our sign? You got to get... There it is. I'm holding up the not, not compatible. Not compatible with Marxism. But actually, these ideas uh, have been in circulation for a long time uh, because there's always been grades of quality in goods. And ever since the Industrial Revolution, there's been a mass market of... Uh, of people Bad that stuff. couldn't afford good stuff. You slide to wear wooden sold shoes. At a time when people were hand making shoes and gar- garments of all kinds, um, and it really was a question of how skilled are they? And, a, you know, a, have they lost their eyesight to some kind of radium poisoning or venereal disease? Yeah, but, it, it, you know, a little old person in a small village could be a wonderful craftsperson and, you know, might have access to the, the same materials, you know, they've got cows too, right? The is, same. This po- is this post-industrial revolution or the cheap ones coming from big mills with big bad machines? That's what ended up happening, right? The, 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 the more you were able to, I mean, you, you're, you're still making shoes in, uh, uh, the sewing machine actually didn't like ruin shoemaking. There's not a shoe mill. There's no satanic shoe mills. There still had to be people making shoes off of lasts until until very recently, really. But you know, qu- there there are good materials. There are quality materials, and there are there are ways to make things whilst skipping four of the seven steps. Right. I mean, a, a good pair of good shoes requires a lot of different layers of material and materials that are processed uh, at, at great cost in both labor and, you know, and um, 
technique. I assume even before synthetics, there was also good materials and bad materials yeah. too, right? This is the nice part of the cow, and this is the cheap, crappy part of the cow. 100%. And also, you know, if you're if the sole of your shoe has one layer as opposed to six layers of Spanish leather, you know, they're going to be very different. Grades of leather always were. But the idea that that um, that buying crap, but buying cheap things was actually kind of not not just like a tragic waste and, and an insult to God, but actually over time more expensive hmm. by virtue of needing to replace those things more often. Your, your recliner stops working, and so whatever it costs or whatever it cost is just is just money out the window. It's gone. You're getting a new one. Trying to fix it was is good money after bad, and so out it goes, and another one comes in, and that one just goes and fills fills up the canyons until they're level with garbage. Um, Which is great. Yeah. It's so much easier to cross the canyon when you can do so on... 100,000 recliners and ET video games. <laughs> that uh, that idea actually dates back to uh, over 100 years ago. I mean, the it's always been folk wisdom, wisdom and wisdom, yeah. both things. Qual um, the quality lasts, I'm sure, right? That's right. You know, if you buy cheap, you buy twice. Oh, is that what? Right. Is that what somebody's Jewish grandma would say? Exactly. Or? It's just a you know, it's it's a common it's it's common sense. It's all old old fashioned common sense. Let me just say that I was envisioning a, a, an affectionate uh, grandma. That's not some kind of yeah, not anti a grandma. Well, not anti-Semitic trope. No, I'm just saying somebody's old world grandma would be like, eh, cheap, you don't twice. buy this new stuff, right? And you know, and I think back to my own father who loved to buy stereo equipment but never wanted to buy good stereo equipment because, God, it was expensive. But every time a new piece of stereo equipment came out that was like, well, this is the latest 8-track, you know, 8-track player, and he would see it at the airport, he would buy it. And our house had this stacked up, <laughs> you know, and all of it garbage, none of it compatible with each other, all of it little tiny 8-inch speakers that were, you know, <laughs> But he would buy it rather than, and I, I was conscious even then of, of the, you know, what constituted a quality receiver. I don't even know where I got that kind of uh, knowledge. I guess it's just, it's just threaded Sol into some people. Soldier of Fortune magazine. Yeah, but I was like, oh, you, you know, what, Dad, Nakamichi. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? First of all, that's $400. Second of all. This Sony says Sorny. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're somebody like your dad who is going to replace it in two years anyway with something with a new. But it always sounded bad. Yeah. I mean, not just sounded bad, sounded terrible. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it didn't matter. And, you know, and the fact that it was shiny, uh, it made him happy. Made him happy. In a way that an expensive one. I mean, the one thing he had that was, that was nice was his Canon AE-1. <laughs> he really... He actually put money in that thing. Camera, right? A camera. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that generation. Got to have a nice camera. Back in the early 20th century, a man by the name of Robert Noonan um, was a working class laborer in, in uh, northern UK, as all stories in the omnibus began. <laughs> right. A man in Leeds. 
Um, and he was really, uh, really struggling to make ends meet. Uh, but he was a thinker and, um, and, uh, you know, a kind of man of his time, right? A, an unlettered, but still literate. And in his spare time working as a, as a grave digger and, uh, and, you know, trying to put trying to cobble together a living. This was also a time of where socialism, uh, which is compatible with Marxism. So yeah, there you go. You get that sign up there. Thank you. Um, was really a topic of the day at the time. And, and, you know, the unions and, and a, strong working, strong, prosperous working class. Yeah. And it seemed right before world war one, that this was going to be, you know, this was the future of the economies of Europe they were all going to become so, socialist democracies. Uh, so he wrote a book um, under the pen name Robert Tressel about a character that was basically himself. I want to write spy novels as Robert Tressel. That's pretty good. Robert Tressel. A Robert Tressel mystery. Um, and he, he was working at the time as a painter, actually as kind of a decorator. Um, and the, the protagonist of his, of his book also worked as a decorator and struggled to um, struggled to to make a living, and and had a kind of had a, a expressed a whole philo- a socialist philosophy. It was a very is this a novel, but it's like full of yeah, it's a full it's, of social messaging. It's a it's a pretty straightforward, literal social messaging novel, right? That was uh, that he couldn't get published in his lifetime, and after he died, his daughter. Uh, his daughter found a publisher for the book, and in 1914, it came out. It, it, it was it was initially published by the writer Jesse Pope, and it, and Jesse Pope really kind of neutered a lot of the overt social oh, messaging. Really? It's a lot less radical when it gets published. A lot less radical, but still came out as a um, and and was a successful book published in the Soviet Union. You know, became a kind of uh, World War One didn't. This wasn't like trying to put a record out on nine eleven. Like, despite it coming out in nineteen fourteen, he did okay. But but I think it wasn't published in the Soviet Union until the twenties. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it was a radical book in a radical time and kind of uh, and found an audience. It wasn't until and it, you know, and George Orwell cited it as a as a uh, you know a must read. Yeah, probably influence on Down Down Paris and London and his uh, his other books about the underclass. The book was called The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. <laughs> well, that needs a polish. And it um it was only in 1955 that the original manuscript was kind of sought out and published in its entirety with all of its, you know, much more sort of strident socialism in it. And it, you know, it remains in print. It's still a it's still kind of considered a a socialist must-read. But in it, he um he says at one point describing the um you know describing his access to only only cheap goods the plight of the working class he says this is how the working classes are robbed although their incomes are the lowest they are compelled to buy the most expensive articles which is to say the lowest priced articles Everybody knows that good clothes, boots, or furniture are really the cheapest in the end, although they cost more money at first. 
but the working classes can seldom or never afford to buy good things. They have to buy cheap rubbish, which is dear at any price. Long term. Right. He's, he's talking about the thing we were talking about. Yeah. And, he, and, and this is at a time when probably all of the cheapest goods, boots, and furniture would now be considered... Um, only the finest quality because they're, you know, still the, the actual good stuff's in the museum. This yeah. is the stuff you could find at, a, at an antique store. Yeah. This is still probably all homemade stuff. I mean, what, yeah. what clothes uh, and furniture made before 1914 looks like, I don't think, I don't think any of us can know, right? You can't go into the Smithsonian and rub your fingers on the fabric and get a sense of how much better things were. No synthetics, right? 1914. Yeah. No, no synthetics, yeah. but also just, uh, you know, fabrics made on looms. Rougher. Instead of just, I, I don't know what they are now, sprayed out of hoses. I'm getting a rash just thinking about it. So the idea was there as long ago as before the war, uh, the, fir- the, the Great War, the war to end all wars. And it's always been, you know, it's consistently been at least an undercurrent in social thought that... Um, it, well, in fact, you, you had, a. we've never referenced the, um, omnibus indexing system within a, within an episode, but can you tell, tell us what the Bible quote was that you, that you've attached uh, to? Well, there's a parable in the Bible. Jesus, um, I think he, I think it's actually not even presented as a parable. He sees somebody giving a big gift to some kind of treasury, you know, some, some wealthy person giving a gift to the synagogue. And then a widow comes in after and gives two mites. And he asks the question, like, well, which is actually the more generous gift? And it's he's making the related point that absolute values don't absolute values of of amounts, monetary amounts, don't mean much when you're comparing the rich and the poor, because you know it's the same reason like why taxes are regressive. You know, if if two people are paying the same percentage gasoline tax, well, that's a much deeper bite for the poorer person. Right. The widow who gave the two mites gave all she had. The guy who gave the much bigger check, that was a drop in the bucket. Who cares if the Walton heirs found another museum because they could found a thousand museums and not feel the pinch. I always picture in those situations, Jesus turning to camera and going, which of these, like in the background, the little widow is holding her two mites. And then it's rack focus. Like she she goes blurry and (laughs) Jesus is like, Jesus is in the foreground. It's like the office. Um, one of the disciples says something dumb, like, "Hey, master, do you mean we should all like uh, literally uh, eat bread forever?" And Jesus does like Jim Halpert face to camera, like, yeah, "Can, like, you, can uh, you believe these guys?" That everybody gets really super uncomfortable. Dwight's the worst apostle. Yeah, I imagine if you were like an apostle hanging out with Jesus, it would get uncomfortable sometimes. Well, he's asking all these questions, and you know your answer is going to be a dumb answer. Like, yeah. you know, he's got like a leading question in mind, yeah. and you still say whatever you're. Your zeroth century Palestinian understanding is, and he's just like, oh, buddy. Why would you ever invite Socrates to a cocktail party? <laughs> like, you know what's going to happen. Hey, Jesus, you asked me last time, <laughs> could you ask Bartholomew or Thaddeus? Uh, like, you haven't asked Thaddeus anything, like, all week. But so this, you know, this notion, um, this notion kind of gets... There's, I, there's extra injustice baked into the, baked into inequality that we don't, think of at first blush yeah and it it um you know in times of in times when economies are flush or also in times when the middle class is receiving like a greater share of the wealth it becomes kind of less of a it's less of a a 
like a conversation topic. But it's been a while, John. Reagan era is now 40 years ago. Yeah. It's been a while since the American middle class prospered or expanded. It has. It has. And I guess a brief, a brief Clintonian renaissance, but that's about it. Yeah, really just a blip in the road. Just, every, a, every, just a bump in the road. Pretty much all the other indicators flattened in 1980 and stayed there. Right. And that is, and that actually will come into play. But in, are you familiar with the literary works of Terry Pratchett? Mm, not firsthand. I understand the vibe, kind of a, a post-Douglas Adams comedy fantasy thing, a lot of which are set, I think, in a flat frisbee land called Discworld. Does this yeah. ring a bell? Yes. Discworld is a is a universe where everyone in everyone in Discworld lives in a fl- on a flat disc, a giant frisbee that's carried on the back <laughs> Must of be nice. four elephants. Hmm. And the elephants ride on the back of a giant tortoise which sails through the universe. What does the tortoise sit on? Well that's the thing. You would think the tortoise was sitting on a larger tortoise. That's, but in, that's old pre-Pratchett thought. Yeah, but in this case, there is a tortoise. It's just that the tortoise th- he's zipping through the universe. is just floating through the universe. I have read no Terry Pratchett, although I do understand it's kind of got that British ironic comedy, except for a book he co-wrote with Neil Gaiman in the early 90s called Good Omens. Right. Which is kind of the, the premise is, if I recall, an, uh, an angel and a devil gang up, an angel from heaven, a devil from hell gang up or team up to try to prevent the apocalypse because they've become affectionate toward toward life on earth and it was a kind of a cult book because neil gaiman wasn't famous yet and and uh, even pratchett like was most of his Discworld books i think weren't out yet but recently it's become i think it's an amazon series with michael sheehan and david tennant um, and that book i liked very much because i was a hitchhiker's fan and i probably should have read more do you know his work at all it doesn't seem like you're reading a lot of uh Terry Pratchett, John. No, I, I, I'm also not maybe the the specific target audience for uh, for like pop culture referencing satirical fantasy novels. Eighties college nerds, uh, because and you know, and, and, and I was an eighties college nerd, but um, and I loved the Hitchhiker's Guide. Series. Oh yeah, you've read Douglas Adams, yeah, right? uh, and um, and recently tried to get my daughter into them, but she's... and you quote Monty Python, by the way, <laughs> I do. I actually More quote, than me. I quote Douglas Adams, but I think a lot of it goes over everyone's head because I because I garble it so much. <laughs> but uh, but Terry Pratchett also um, uh, kind of you know was he came up in in uh, what I think he would have described as the the middle class or lower middle class and became a writer initially as a you know almost as a trade. Um, Neil Gaiman too. He was like a journalist or something. Yeah. Just whatever all, would pay the bills, magazine profiles of celebrities. It often starts with, with that kind of, of journalism. His first book was uh, the carpet people was published in 1971, um, but did not really take off. He wrote. Yeah. When did those disc world books catch on? 83 is when the disc world books first began. And they, and they sold, huh? Uh, they did sell. And Ultimately, he became the best-selling author in Britain. He wrote 41 Discworld novels at a pace of two a year. Yeah, extremely prolific. Because he didn't live that long. He, uh, sadly, he was diagnosed with uh, dementia, I think, and died in his 60s. Yeah, he, ha- he, had, uh, he had early onset and advanced Alzheimer's oh, disease and so became, sad. for a long time, a, an advocate of 
assisted death. Yeah. Um, but but his his legend or his story is that the uh, that the Alzheimer's advanced so fast that he didn't. He ended up dying of natural causes. Hmm. He also wore a big hat. Every time a, I see a picture of him, a big black hat, it's like Gandalf the Black. And it does seem like it might be an actual hat, but also that he might not have been above wearing a, a, a crap hat. You're looking in some pictures; it's good, in some pictures, it's not. It's really hard to tell because a big black fedora black, yeah. is like it could go a lot of ways. But it does seem like he's wearing nice hats. But it is also the kind of hat that a that a sci-fi fantasy satirist might wear, um, rather than like an actual. There's something kind of space. There's something kind of sprightly and wizardly about him, though. You know, he yeah. doesn't. He doesn't have kind of the comic book shop vibe of, of some American genre authors. But he was also uh, compatible with Marxism and a lot of his views. And in 1993, ten years into his career, so twenty novels later, or twenty Discworld novels later. <laughs> Um, he wrote a book called Man, uh, Men at Arms and the, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the protagonist of a lot of his books was a, uh, a character named Sam Vimes, who was a kind of detective who, it was like a space detective. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this by having read reviews of these books, not having read them actually. So I don't know exactly what a... A thousand people are leaping to correct you right yeah, now, like when Alderaan exploded. And please don't please don't yell at me about it. I, I admire his books, and I admire Sam Vimes, and I admire you for having read all 41 of them. And for your passion about him and, and our mistakes about him. And over the course of uh, the, the novel, Sam Vimes becomes more and more of an exalted character. At one point, he... he He's, he's, he's an ambassador. He's referred to as his excellency. He's, a he's, uh, but he is compatible with Marxism and in men at arms, Vimes explains what he describes as the captain Sam Vimes boots theory of socio socioeconomic unfairness. And it goes like this. And it, and, it, and it really echoes the ragged, trousered philanthropist. But he says, the reason that the rich were so rich was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He, Sam Vimes, earned $38 a month plus allowances. This is before he became the exalted ambassador. Mm-hmm. $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two, and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out. That's another thing. They use a lot of cardboard in cheap boots. No. Yeah, they do. That's a scandal. Those boots cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots that Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Mopork, Morpork. Some fantasy city or country, <laughs> I, think, I believe. I think Ankh Morpork is probably on the back of a giant disc that's or, riding on. Or is that the moment that the Alzheimer's began and suddenly the book is like Ankh Morpork? <laughs> I think it was a long time before, oh, okay. before the Alzheimer's set in. And you know what's interesting about the way his Alzheimer's affected him? He retained all of his cognitive ability. Huh. It just affected his, his physical abilities. For a writer, that must have been a, a, a blessing while it lasted. Well, except that I think his physical abilities included his ability to write manually oh, like and also, you know, speak. So uh, He had to dictate or yeah, something? Yeah, he dictated his mm-hmm. last books. 
Anyway, he could tell where he was in Ankh Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. Mm. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked around in a pair of shoes with a hole in the sole, but I had a, a pair of shoes that I wore a lot where the sole was so thin it was like it was like skin. And I I remember being able to feel the texture of the pavement. Yeah, like actually feel the feel the world through the soles of my shoes, but it but it, and it would get wet. My socks would get wet. Those were the days. The thing is, those are often the comfiest shoes. They know, were pretty the, good. One, the ones you have worn to to threadbare status. And you know, I, I would just keep wearing stuff like that long after I should have. But here's the thing: the good boots lasted for years and years. A man could who could afford fifty dollars had a pair of boots that still be keeping his feet dry in ten years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent a hundred dollars on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. Are you telling me there's all these kind of systemic things that keep the rich richer and the poor poorer? This was the Captain Samuel Vimes boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. Now, a lot of people, drew, this this resonated in its time, 1993. These books are probably being read by young, poorish students who are buying cheap Ikea furniture and whatnot. And his, you know, what he asserts in this kind of one-off paragraph is that this is the reason that the rich were so rich. And a lot of people seized on that and kind of tried to run with it. Um, this isn't the reason the rich are so rich. But the rich are rich for similar reasons, whereas you get off to a good start and then there are all these feedback loops that make it so much easier to stay moneyed. Well, that's the thing. A lot, Most of the rich are still rich because they were born rich or they had, you know, they had the opportunity to yeah. leverage their wealth into other wealth. But this is the reason that people fall out of the bottom of the middle class. And it is why systemic poverty stays, you know, it's why it's systemic, right? It's very All hard. Little self-reinforcing things. That's right. And it, and it extends to fuel costs, electricity, food, especially like poor quality begets poor quality. And it's very hard to break out of that cycle. Uh, one that's often referred to is just the amount of time you spend, you know, a lower paying job, you know, so much of your life is going into that hourly wage that it's, you know, it's not just that you don't have time to better yourself with a second job or a degree or whatever. It's just like, you know, every little errand you have to run um, is something that a middle-class person would not think about twice, but becomes a huge headache to the people at the bottom of the pyramid. And then what results from that? You know, fines, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of fees and fines and inconveniences that come with having to delay errands or, or delay deadlines or it's just not pretty. And you don't think about any of it when it, if you're the kind of person who's like, yeah, yeah, I'll just do that this weekend. Well, and it's what, what's interesting about uh, the boots theory is that it may not surprise you. And again, please don't write me angry letters, only write me happy letters. But typically, the people who are reading Terry Pratchett Discworld novels are not the desperately poor. True. And so what you, what you had was that this boots theory went out, it disseminated out through, you know, the fantasy fans into the popular culture. But as those fantasy fans that read these books in the early 90s aged and aged into the middle class— the ideology of the boots theory became an interestingly middle class set of ideas that attached itself to the 
age-old idea of false economy, right? And 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 that's at the core of these the uh, the the socialist aspect of it kind of got drawn out a little bit and replaced with now that you're rich buy nice stuff exactly and so a lot of people will remember it was not that long ago um but for for the last 20 years especially a lot of complaints about planned obsolescence and about the the um the false economies of cheaper goods and very little of that conversation is about the poor. Most of it is about because right, they're not the audience for those think pieces, right? right? Is about value for the dollar. Mm. And in the two thousands and two thousand tens, there was suddenly a, a a whole what felt like a movement of people saying, "I'm only going to buy goods made in America. I'm going to invest." I'm going to buy one pair of shoes instead of five pair of shoes. I'm going to buy the nice overcoat, even if it's $350. Because, and I'm going to justify this, what is effectively a luxurious purchase, by saying that over time, I'm going to get more value, and it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper for me to buy a $500 pair of shoes than five pairs of $100 shoes. Is the problem that those people then begin to buy five pairs of $500 shoes? Is that what happens? Well, what's interesting is that I was a, you know, I fell into this idea at first because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stuff I had were, was this old stuff that I'd gotten at thrift stores that was old and was obviously, you know, I was still wearing jackets that were made in the fifties and was still, wearing them and they looked contemporary and cool. And, and so as this heritage mentality started to pervade and became kind of a, it was even a, certainly a millennial mentality, but even a late millennial mentality. Yeah. I, I waited right in as a, as a, a proponent of the idea. And I had this relationship already with the Filson company, which is one of these, as you know, uh, you know, original heritage brands that wants you to believe that a $400 wool jacket is worth it because it's going to last and last and last. And I, well, are you going to turn on Filson here? Well, no, I, that, I never would have predicted. That's the thing. I was an evangelist of this idea. Um, and I heard from a lot of people that said, I saved up my money all year long to buy this one Filson jacket because I believe in this notion. I'm convinced that rather than go buy a bunch of flimsy rain jackets, I'm going to buy this uh, this one, what you would call lifetime thing. And I started to make purchasing decisions of all kinds of things based on these criteria, right? Like it's very hard to find a washing machine that's made in America. Um, and it's very hard to buy a microwave that's, a heritage microwave. These places don't, nobody is even using that as a selling point. Like this is the one you'll have for 20 years because I think the consumer is very resistant to that. They want to imagine themselves constantly upgrading to, to new and better tech. Well, even in appliances. And that's a, you know, and that became kind of a tension between the people that are like, I want to be able to talk to my refrigerator and people that were like, that's not going to work in five years. Like if you think about the GPS system in a car from 2011, yeah, 
you're like, oh, womp womp. Except nobody drives a 20 year old car anymore. So it, it does become a, or, or rather the, when I was a kid, everybody had a 20 year old car right? sure. and now you hardly see it. So yeah. How do you balance your light bulb that you, that you say light bulb turn orange, like your desire to have that technology in your house with a recognition that like, well, that light bulb is going to stop working. Because the manufacturer is always incentivized to, to make new toys, you know, like to, to make you feel like you're missing out if you don't replace your ex. Right. So that's, even if it's, you know, a lot of them will be illusory, but it's going to keep happening. It's guaranteed to keep happening. A magazine uh, actually kind of did some back of the napkin math uh, saying like, if you bought, and this is, this is back when a, uh, a fancy pair of jeans was one hundred dollars. Ken, can, can, <laughs> can you, you imagine? imagine? Can you imagine buying a hundred dollar pair of jeans? One hundred dollars for a pair of jeans. What is it made of? Is it made of what? Gold? Yeah. And now, caviar? As we know now, you can spend fifteen hundred dollars on a pair of jeans. But at the time, they were like, you know, here's the argument uh, to buy a one hundred dollar pair of jeans versus a thirty dollar pair of jeans. A uh, $100 pair of jeans, assuming you wore them three days a week, uh, and assuming they lasted five years, that's 780 days of wear for $100, you would be paying 14 cents per wear. Is that more than Mr. Cheap Jeans? $30 jeans, you're only going to, if you're wearing them three times a week, you're only going to wear them 234 days. That's 17 cents per wear. It's three more cents per wear to buy the cheaper jeans. Now, all of these figures are 100% made up. Right. This is, this is trying to explain this theory with completely made up. Well, it seems like it would be different in different Numbers. fields. Yeah. It would, you know, it depends on you know, how you quantify. And also, you can't really quantify the whatever additional boost the person, the the owner gets from the quality of the item during the time period. And that's the thing. And I'm particularly like uh, clothing items or whatnot. I mean, the, there's a theory, uh, there's a, the, uh, there's a, I guess, yeah. What are you going to call it? A theory of life or, or a, um, a principle called the comfort principle, which says you should spend more money where you spend more time. So don't skimp on your mattress. Yeah. Because you're there one third of your life. But if you only go swimming twice a year, don't buy the most expensive swimsuit. You can buy a cheap swimsuit because it's a because it's a thing you hardly ever use. But if you live in a cold climate, buy the best warmest jacket you can afford. That seems to be a trend for people to do. I mean, maybe not strictly on time, but just based on where they care, you know, like if there's something that's an interest of yours, that's where you splurge. Right. But if you don't care, the same person who doesn't care about, you know, the, what their bedroom furniture looks like, will just get Ikea nightstands because they don't care. I knew a lot of people who bought expensive boots in 2015. And it was surprising to find in 2021, you could still see them wearing those boots. They hadn't, they hadn't grown out of them and they hadn't abandoned the idea. Why were all your friends buying boots in sync in 2015? Because that was kind of, 2015 was it, seemed- Was it a boot, big boots year? It seemed like a watershed moment, both because um, all of the 
kids that were born in 1985 were suddenly 30, right? They all, I mean, it's like peak, 2015 just feels like. That's when all the millennials had. All the millennials had money. Turned into adults. Yeah. And they all bought uh, Red Wing, Iron Rangers, and they still, or, or Wolverine 1000 mile boots, and they all still have them and they all still wear them. So in that sense, I think that some of that ideology is playing out. But the, the practicability of this as a theory of poverty and a theory of, um, of inequality. Class, right? Class has been brought back to the fore recently. Although it's, you know, it's always burbled under the surface. It became a kind of middle class, um, ju- uh, in a way, I guess, justification to buy nice things. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, there are blogs ad nauseum that are like, let me compare these $600 boots. You know, you can have these custom boots made and which is the better value. And it's kind of like, come on. But recently a writer in the UK and, and interestingly, all of these, these quotes and all of these writers are all from the UK. Um, and, and I think partly it is that social socialism is still very active in, you know, in labor politics in the UK in a way that in the United States, it's, it's, it's very easily, easy to dismiss as too radical because the United States has never really had, never really been a social democracy. Mm-hmm. Whereas the UK has, has flirted with it a lot more closely. But there's a writer in the UK named Jack Monroe, who's a, a, a non-binary writer who uses she, her pronouns. Okay. Um, who really fell on hard times early on in her life and was trying to live. She, she had a, a, a child and found herself in a situation where she was trying to live on 10 pounds a week. I remember her. Do you? Yes. She wrote a blog called Cooking on a Bootstrap. Yes. And which, by the way, which is a funny thing about the boots theory is that it uses the boot metaphor that is often the right wing approach to poverty. Right. Pull right. yourself up. And uh, and her her pen name and then ultimately her name, uh, Jack Monroe. She adopted it uh, out of Jack of all trades mm. because during her years of many or of deep uh, poverty, she felt like she had to resort to um, being a you know, like hooker by crook, really, really pulling a life together. And her cooking on a bootstrap uh, website, you know, gave her kind of an initial little burst of income. She got a, you know, she got a grant of 25,000 pounds that immediately just kicked her out of being eligible for public housing and actually made her poorer, right? This is something that, uh, that often- The perverse incentives of, of different implementations of the welfare state. Yeah, exactly. As soon as you like- get a foothold somewhere. Somebody takes a benefit away. Yeah. Um, but Jack Monroe gradually through her blog and through her advocacy, you became a, a writer and a pub, a journalist and a public figure in the United Kingdom advocating on behalf of the poor and particularly in the area of food insecurity. And in 2022, earlier this year, January of this year, she came out with a new price index. She had been 
kind of following the consumer price index, which is a which is a uh, a way of describing how expensive it is to live. You know how, how expensive it is. Cost of living. Cost measure. of living. And the way they do it in the UK, not much different from here in the United States, is they have a a uh, a basket of goods that reflect kind of the overall sense of what prices are at that moment. Is it like a, a monthly budget for someone? It's like this much, this much is groceries and this much is. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a cross section of what's for sale. So it, it, so although it includes a lot of food items, it also includes uh, televisions and, and no, sh- no champagne. Attempt, no and, attempt to weight it to match what a, sp- a certain kind of household would be spending. No, typically the, the, uh, the, the consumer price index as promulgated by the uh, the office of national statistics in the UK was this sort of you know fairly out of touch with because it was trying to be a cr- yeah. cross co- cross income level it should include drops uh, the car prices going up at the same time as tv prices are going down or yeah yeah and and so jack monroe's criticism was this really artificially flattens the actual cost of living, particularly for people on the lower income spectrum. Because their stuff tends to be the stuff that does creep up, food and gas, and not the stuff that, you know, can dip consumer electronics, for example. But one of the observations that she made was that, in fact, the what's happening at groceries, for instance, in the UK, was that the very bargain foodstuffs like bags of rice, packages of pasta, mm-hmm. there had always been the kind of uh, no-name brand, you know, the, the the super discount version of it. And that a lot of grocery stores in their kind of uh, attempts to be deluxe and appeal to a fancy crowd were eliminating that mm. lower tier of groceries. The money, it turns out, is not in selling to the poor people. Right. And so she observed that uh, in her own local grocery store, that what had formerly been a, a one kilogram bag of rice for 45 pence, in the space of just a year, they eliminated the one kilogram bag, replaced it with a half kilogram bag, and now it was one pound for a half kilogram I've read bag. her work on this, and the CPI doesn't capture any of it, really. No, no. It's, it's invisible to, you know, the, the, the CPI says, oh, prices have gone up for and a half percent, but her observation was price of, the price of rice in this instance went up 344% for that, the people that can afford right. it at least. And that's most troubling to the people who are spending most of their money on staples like that. Right. So, you know, the most vulnerable. And so in making this um, kind of sweeping criticism of the way that poverty is reported on and measured, Jack Monroe came out with a new price index in the UK, uh, uh, developed a new price index that, um, that took into consideration, you know, the actual cost of living of people that are living kind of at the, at the, at the very tail end of the uh, economic ladder. She called it the VBA, the Vimes boot index. (laughs) And it actually had a, had a, a market and almost immediate effect on the way poverty is measured in the UK. 
um, because all of the, because the, the, uh, I mean, it's good for the current government. The current government wants to sweep bad trends under the rug, right? right? So they're incentivized to have a CPI that's does not reflect the bad, the recent bad news. Yeah. That says, you know, oh, things are terrible. You know, inflation's up 4%. It's like, well, actually. For, in, for this kind of household. Yeah. It's 20%. Yeah. Um, and so it appears that, uh, that the Vimes boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness is actually now beginning to have an effect on public policy in the UK. And when questioned, uh, Terry Pratchett's daughter, who's, you know, who's administering his estate said that the, the Pratchett family enthusiastically endorses the use of, of, uh, the Vimes boots index because he would have, you know, he would have supported the, uh, because it's compatible with Marxism. And that concludes the Boots Theory, entry 143.LK2104, certificate number 28114, in the Omnibus. Now, Futurelings, it would cost you nothing to follow us at Omnibus Project on various social media platforms. I was Ken Jennings, and John was at John Roderick in his time. You know, perhaps you're from a, a socialist utopia where money has no value and you use credits or vouchers or some kind of other sci-fi currency. Uh, if that's true and you have a way to uh, get some of your largesse back to our time, the best way to support the show is at our Patreon, patreon.com slash omnibusproject. We appreciate the widow's might more than anyone. The large checks, you know, we look a little askance at because mm. clearly that's that's a person who gave us a hundred when they could have given us a thousand. You know, anybody throwing a hundred dollars at a podcast could give ten times as much and not feel the pinch. But when we see someone go from $0 to $5, first of all, we think, well, they're going to have an amazing treasure trove of, uh, of material from our archives to go 100% through. agree. Think of all the perks. But also how meaningful that is, that they have, uh, with, with all that they could have done with their money, that they're supporting this show. So thank you. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. More relevant right now because I'm sitting on a stack of mail. You can send us <laughs> physical items to P.O. Box 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What is all this? This is soft. This is oh, somebody sending us a... Something a, sent us soft. A poorly made t-shirt. No. That Sam Vimes would disagree with. No, these t-shirts, I'm sure, are only the finest American-made t-shirts. There's an XL that says, Frowsy Ne'er-Do-Well. Okay, could be me. Yeah, I think that's you. And there's a medium that says, Tidy Ne'er-Do-Well. Oh, and they have the Omnibus logo. These are, these are like custom made for us. Oh, wow. Oh, and we're, throw me mine. And we're going to start wearing them around, around town together. Let me see this. Oh, yeah. We'll get, we got to frowsy Haven't ne'er-do-well. You, you, have you been a, a self-described frowsy ne'er-do-well on, on, on some or all of your shows before? I no, think, I, I, I think that's you. I imagine that we used these terms at some point. Frowsy. You know, I, I think I may have used the word frowsy without even knowing what it means. It means scruffy and neglected in appearance. Well... There it is. <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. So you had to look up this word that you think you've used before? I know I've used it, but there it is. And you are, does it yours say tidy ne'er-do-well? Yeah, I'm a ti- I guess that would be the opposite of frowsy. Yeah, but well, I'm and st- also true, you're you're quite tidy. But I think I do well quite, oh no, sorry. He's I, a clean I, old I, man. I misread it. I am a clean old man. Mine says ne'er-do-ill. Oh, a tidy it's the, ne'er-do-ill. It's the opposite. Oh, look at us. Because I, I do prefer to, I mean, I rarely do ill and, you know, I shoot for ne'er. yeah. But um, you you're, know, Nair's a high, Nair's a high bar. You're really a Felix, though. <laughs> I, I, I am kind of a Felix. 
I'm a Felix. I I used to be more of an Oscar, and then now that I have teens who are who are my Oscar, who are now, true Oscars, I have become a Felix. This is a little bit confusing because um, Angela has sent us a book from straight from the uh, the bookseller, which means she was unable to explain why she has sent us the casebook of Ching and Chmukane, hmm. the account of the collaboration of a young Chinese naval officer and an elderly, very perceptive. This is on the cover. An elderly, very perceptive Mesoamerican woman as they encounter mysteries and adventures. It's a this pitch, is fiction or real? It's a pitch for a TV show. It appears to be fiction. Oh. Um, it may be because we did a Contiki show. That appears to be relevant here to, to um, Chinese naval officers encountering Mesoamericans. Th- this feels very much like a pitch for a TV show from people who don't watch TV. <laughs> I think you I know c- it would be amazing. I could see a streaming service be like. Okay, check out the representation here. A 15th century Chinese naval officer teams up with a wise indigenous woman from cent- from Central America. You got the Asian audience, you got the Latino audience. Are they solving 15th century mysteries or are they transported to the future? They are in, in this case they are encountering mysteries and adventures in their time. They uncover a secret society run by a mysterious leader known as the Jaguar. So this is happening in Central yeah, and South America. It's happening in pre-Columbian and Mesoamerica. Uh, cuz I would love it if they went to Europe. <laughs> the two of them were solving mysteries in Poland. This is written by Bell Colson, who there who, of whom there is no such person. Bell is an acronym for Brendan, Edward, and Lisa Linda, the family that collaborates on oh. uh on these improbable adventures. Angela, I have no idea why you sent us this, but uh it's delightful. It does seem like it would it's very omnibus if it were true. <laughs> uh I think I'm gonna hold on to this mail. I'm gonna hold on I'm gonna hold yeah, on to yeah, this yeah, for well, later. Uh, save it. That's plenty of mail. Save uh, it for later. Run away, run away. Let me if you down. would like to criticize us on points of economic theory, professional wrestling history. Just uh, write to Mindy Jennings. <laughs> you can uh, find the Futurelings online to argue with uh, on Facebook and Discord. Pretty much wherever the word Futureling appears. Nobody else has tried to appropriate that. So That's pretty good. So we're good, I think. Uh, and I'm sure they'll have a lot to say about economic theory oh there are going to be a lot of i i wonder and about terry pratchett novels i wonder who's going to write more to us the terry pratchett fans or the or the marxists what do you what do you bet uh i think we're going to hear more from terry pratchett fans because that's actually a subculture that still exists unlike (laughs) unlike marxist leninism (laughs) lol uh we can't wait to hear from you Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese, and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.